songs this morning, choice of psalm. Psalm 56 is probably my second most read psalm. My most read psalm is Psalm 62. Um, that's what happens when you, you, uh, you're not in a series, you get to preach your favorite uh, verses. Psalm 62, uh, please turn there. Wonderful psalm. When you look at Psalm 56 and Psalm 62, you can see probably why I most seek solace in the psalms, seek strength in the psalms, those particular ones. It's because I need courage. I'm probably not very scared of physical threats, um, but talking to people, that can be hard. <laughs> Preaching when you know people are offended with you, that can be hard. I don't think I offend you very often. Um, but there are circumstances where you know the gospel you are preaching, people are hating what you're saying. Um, and, and I don't have that courage naturally. I don't have natural courage to stand up to people. Um, and so I pour out my heart to God. And this has been such a wonderful help to me uh, over time is, is this psalm, Psalm 56 as well. I found, incidentally, as I, as I was reading through it again, that it's actually the first psalm that Annie and I read together when we were dating. So it's a bit special there too. Let's look at it together. Not for any particular reason. That we... <laughs> I'm not scared of her. Um... <laughs> Sometimes, but... <laughs> anyway. I'm scared of her moral force. <laughs> okay, verse 1, Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to the Jedithan, I'm going to probably mispronounce that constantly, but I'll just say it that way. A Psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man? to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests uh, my salvation. And my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion or oppression. Let no vain set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are, we are people who need your strength, need your grace every minute. And we're so delighted to know you, we're so delighted that you have set your love on us from all eternity and that we can trust you, we can call you my God, my rock. Father, please work in our hearts this morning, bring to mind things that you seek to minister to in each of us this morning. And Father, please let your word, word come across with clarity and power this morning that we may bow our knee before what you have to say. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the superscript of the, the psalm, the title, as Matt often mentions, is to the choir master according to the Jedithan, a psalm of David. A, a Jedithan, it could have been a man, could have been a Levite who was in charge, uh, of the, uh, of charge, in charge of directing the music. It could also have been a, a term, a musical term, speaking about the tune that was going to be used or the tuning of the harp, which was, I found, interesting. Um, but again, it's, it's in the past. Uh, we can't say exactly what it was. What's really important for us to see in this psalm is that it's a psalm of David, and this will help us to, to understand it as we look at what he means 
uh, by what he's saying here, and he proclaims his trust in God alone. The first six verses are what we call in, an inclusio, which is a fancy name for a sandwich. Um, <laughs> we see a complaint, and we see that David surrounds that complaint with, with statements about the fact that God is unassailable, that God is great. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, something we're going to look at uh, today. And it's really helpful for us to, to see that, uh, the complaint with the bookends and see what David's doing there. We'll have a look at that further on. The cause for uh, David crying out to God in this way, in this psalm and stating his trust in God, is that he's facing difficulty. And we see that difficulty in uh, verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4. It pains my obsessive nature to start in verse 3. Um, but, but this is where we need to start so that we can see why. Why is he saying the things that he's saying? And so we can understand his in, in inclusio there, his sandwich there. Uh, verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they cursed. When he's saying, uh, how long here? It's a rhetorical question. He's not asking him if I'll be done by lunch. Um, he's saying, stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. And we're going to see a number of things about this attack. First of all, it's a vicious attack. It's a vicious attack. You can see if you have an American Standard Version, uh, the word that the uh, ESV translates as batter is uh, translated in the NAS with its more common meaning of murder. Murder. He's not just talking about someone coming up and paddling him. He's talking about someone seriously wanting to do him harm. So it's, it's vicious. Um, and this makes sense. If you're thinking of the overthrow of a king... A coup, uh, kings did not usually survive coups. They were usually killed, and so you could see this was murderous. One commentator, uh, Van Gemeren, says uh, of this verse, the wicked uh, purpose nothing less than complete destruction. Complete destruction. The second aspect we see here of this attack is that it was opportunistic. Opportunistic. They had seen a weakness, and they attacked at the point when they saw that he was, that he was weak. Uh, him speaking himself of himself as a leaning wall or a tottering fence uh, is at a time when he's easily knocked over. When I first moved to Melbourne, I'd just finished Bible college. I didn't have that many practical skills at the time. And my father-in-law had been a carpenter since before the war. And, but he'd had a stroke, so he was, he was in his chair, and his, his fence was a weak paling fence. You know, paling fence where it's just basically boards sort of uh, overlapping down the fence, very common in Melbourne. And it was starting to get old, and I saw a paling fall off. So I think, oh, I'll go and find his hammer and a nail, and I'll go and fix it. Well, I go out and grab with the hammer and nail and bang it on there, and what do you think happened? Yeah, five more palings fell off <laughs> as I'm there, and I could just feel his eyes boring into the back of me from, from his chair. These people here, they, they see David at a, at, a, at a time when he's weak, and they choose to kick the palings off. They choose to kick him when he's weak and for, for their own enjoyment, but also to, to see him destroyed. Attacking someone when they're not able to defend themselves is what bullies do. It's what cowards do. And so this was opportunistic. Secondly, their attack is motivated by jealousy and ambition. Jealousy and ambition. What was it that they wanted to do? Did they want, in, want to usher in again the era of the judges? Not at all. That was a very low point in the, in the time of Israel. They didn't want to get rid of the monarchy. They wanted his job. They wanted his glory. They wanted his honor. They wanted people to bow before them. This is what they were after. Um, the next aspect of this is it was fueled by the tongue. Ain't that always the way? <laughs> Fueled by the tongue, they were spreading lies about their leader, trying to turn people against him through dishonesty. And this language is powerful. They bless with their mouths. So before David, they're all sweetness and light. But in their hearts, what are they doing? Cursing, 
They're cursing him. And interestingly, this is not they're, not, they're not speaking naughty words. They're literally cursing him. It was believed at the time certain utterances would tear people down, would destroy them, would ruin their health, would ruin their reign. There's still places in the world that believe that right now. But this was their hearts. It wasn't just someone speaking ill. It was someone wanting to destroy him, uh, literally, utterly hateful. So we see that hateful, jealous, cowardly, dishonest people were seeking to destroy his character, steal his reign, and murder him. So this is, this is seriously. Sorry, this is something that's serious. So you ask yourself, who might this be? Well, there, there are a number of times in David's life where he faced these things. It's what you face when you're a leader. It's what, it's what you face when you're famous. And he was certainly famous there. You think of Paul and how, uh, Saul and how much it irked him that people would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And it, it irked him, so he wanted to kill him. Uh, uh, Absalom, again, his own son, sought to overthrow him, sought to kill him. Now, if we were to think through these cases, there were, there were others as well in Psalm 56. That was when he was running away from Saul. He's in Philistine territory. Um, and so he's facing similar things there. In Saul's case, David was not yet in a high position. He didn't want to take his position. And would you say that Saul was sneaky? I don't think so. I think Saul was just a blunt instrument, right? But when we think of Absalom... That's another story. That's very interesting if we compare this to Absalom's story in 2 Samuel, chapters 15 through 18. We're not going to read all of that. I'm trusting that you've uh, uh, read through that, that section yourself. If not, it would be, be a good thing for you to do. Absalom, in that story, won the hearts of the people through deceit. So he would sit at the city gate, ask people what they were coming to Jerusalem for, if they were coming for the king's justice, for him to give answers to what they needed, his wisdom, Absalom would check in there and say, no, 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 come to me, come to me. And he would give his answer. And then as they went, he'd say, wouldn't it be great if I had this job? <laughs> Interesting. You hear that these days too, don't you? He sought his own glory. Absalom was a man who was very vain. He set up a monument to himself. Interesting set up a monument to himself. He tried to take David's throne. He wanted to kill David, very clear. David was weak. He was older. He might have been my age. <laughs> I think he was a little bit older than that. He might have been James's age. Um, <laughs> I heard Karen laugh the loudest then, but... Um, <laughs> he was older. He was not the mighty man he used to be. Honestly, he was one of the greatest warriors that Israel ever saw. But he was getting older. He was in a no-win situation. What do I mean by that? Well, he could get his throne back, but how would he get his throne back? His son that he loved would end up dying. He, he, he foresaw that. He foresaw that, that that would be the case. He was weakened in that his, uh, one of his most trusted advisors, a guy called Ahithophel, had joined Absalom. Again, my, my closest allies are against me. Mephibosheth, if you've heard of him, uh, was a son of Saul who, who David had shown great kindness to after Saul's death, seeking to show him grace. And yet in this case, at least it seemed, that Mephibosheth too had turned against David for his own ends. Weakened. Again. Interesting too to notice that even David's friends were not that trustworthy. You know of Joab, the, the sons of Zeruiah, who were just wild men, wild men. And it was difficult for, for David to even trust them. In 2 Samuel uh, 15.30, in the middle of that, we see that as David walked out of Jerusalem, he was openly weeping as he walked. You know, there weren't many times in David's life when you could say he was weak. Uh, but this was certainly one of them. He was certainly a, a leaning wall, a tottering fence. And just imagine how much more it weakened him to realize that this was still because of his own sin with Bathsheba. It was still because of his own sin with Bathsheba. 
It was his sin also in not standing up to his son Amnon who raped the sister uh, where Absalom really fell apart during that time. He was weakened in it. We also see that, that David here is very much surrendered to the will of God. You know, the priests, as he was leaving Jerusalem weeping, the priests came out and they brought the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, take it back. Take it back. This might be God's judgment on me. It's not mine. If God brings me back to Jerusalem, then I'll enjoy that. And I'll enjoy your fellowship. But don't bring that with me now. When Shimei, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, came out and was cursing David. He was a descendant of Saul, cursing him on the road and throwing stones at him. Paul's, uh, sorry, um, David's friends wanted to kill him. He goes, kill this dead dog, they said to him. David said, don't kill him. He might be speaking God's words to me. Uh, just amazingly surrendered to the will of God in his life in this point, as we see in this psalm. And, and we see also... His surrender even to his men when they said, don't you come out and lead us. Don't do it. You stay in the city. We'll take care of it for you. And he agreed, which must have been difficult for him. So this may have been referring to some unknown challenge, but it certainly fits well with Absalom's rebellion, um, what we see in this psalm. Now, seeing all of that on his shoulders... Let's see what the Lord wants to teach us today through this psalm and think of our own circumstances. I've got very simple headings here. First of all, uh, one, where my strength lies. Second of all, where my strength does not lie. And third, where my hope lies. Where my hope lies. Uh, the first point, where my strength lies, is the longest because I'm going to deal with the first eight verses, the first six and the inclusio or the sandwich that I talked about, and then its application in verses 7 and 8. In his excellent commentary on the first half of Psalms, Gerald Wilson points out that the first lesson we learn here is not so much in the words, but how they're crafted. How they're crafted. David mentally surrounds his problem with the mighty power of God. He mentally surrounds his problem with the mighty power of God. You can see his problem. And then you see he says virtually identical things before and after it. Very clear. Um, speaks of God's unshakableness. Wilson says this, The effect of the inclusio is to surround the attacking enemy with the power and protection of God so that any strength or effectiveness attributed to the enemy is nullified from the start. The intentions of the wicked have no real substance since they are engulfed by the power of God, which renders them void. Now, he's not talking about praying a hedge. You've uh, probably heard of that. Um, it's quite a superstitious thing to do, actually, and God does not need us to manipulate him to protect us. He does protect us. He's dealing with his heart. He's dealing with his heart. If David was to, to focus on the hurt, to focus on the enemy, well, he'd be engulfed by it. He'd be engulfed by it and already defeated. But he lifts his eyes. He lifts his eyes to how big and powerful and unassailable his God is. And when he does that, what does his enemy look like? Just minuscule. Minuscule. Well, let's look at how God is described here. God has described in the inclusio, we'll see three uh, ways that he's described exactly the same. Um, in verses 2 and 6, he's called my rock. Verses 2 and 6 again, he's called my salvation. Verses 2 and 6 again, he's called my fortress. Verse 7, he moves on, my mighty rock. And then the last way he describes God is in verse 7, my refuge, my refuge. Do you notice how, how personal he is there? He's not saying a rock, a salvation, a fortress, a refuge. He's saying he's mine. He's mine. My, 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 my. Very powerful. I'm going to talk about this when we get to the last point, but we, we need to see that David was absolutely confident that God was committed to him. God was committed to him. I love that, that part in, in Psalm 56 earlier. Um, this I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. Beautiful words. 
The word rock here speaks of massive stone formations. And when spoken of in in this context, it speaks of strength and reliability and safety. Um, Down in in verse uh, 7, he intensifies this and he, he calls God his mighty rock. His mighty rock. Total, total security when God is your rock. The next uh, aspect is that he's uh, salvation, our salvation. And this is speaking of rescue from danger, rescue from danger. Often in the Psalms, the word salvation is, is speaking of that physical salvation, God's preservation of us. Um, this does not mean that God always snatches us from our trials. It doesn't mean that. He often does, and it's a wonderful answer to prayer and something we praise him for when he does. But God has great use for trials, great use for trials in our lives. Um, so, so what's it meaning if that's the case? It means that God held on to him. God held on to him. God kept him strong. And there's a, there's a beautiful example of this, striking example in 2 Timothy 4.18. I'll just read that to you. A wonderful book, 2 Timothy. Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Interesting. Interesting to think about those words. Where is Paul? facing evil he's been unjustly imprisoned imprisoned unjustly treated in a horrific prison dark and wet and horrible many people die just by being in that prison so what is the salvation he's confident of is he confident that he won't lose his life no he knows he's going to lose his life that's one of the major themes in 2 Timothy is I know I am finished (laughs) this earth so what's he talking about what's he talking about to live to live as christ to die as so he's not seeing that as a as a great loss to him to lose his life he wants to be with christ that's his great joy what's what's paul's horror that in all of those trials he might fail christ that in all of those trials he might fail christ he might not honor him as he should. So the salvation, the rescue that we're looking at here is that God would preserve his soul and his character and his testimony through the most horrific of circumstances. God is our savior, but it does not mean that we don't suffer. He can hold you. A fortress here speaks of a high place, a walled city, A place where you're safe from attack. A place where you're safe from attack. God is that place, God personally. A refuge is a place you run to when you're in danger. A shelter from life's storms. God is that place. Your safe place. So tying them all together as we look at how he's surrounding his problem here. God is the greatest security that David can imagine. The greatest security that David can imagine. High, mighty, massive, stable, strong, impenetrable, willing to save. Willing to save. When we take time to think about who God is, our our struggles look so small. So small. You think of your opponent staring you down. And looking at you like a weak fence, but he does not know where you're standing. He does not see who's behind you. He does not see who's in front of you. He does not see who's beside you. He does not see your mighty God there. We need to see that. He's yours. He's on your side. That's why we can see that David in these verses can trust God. In his salvation from trial, he can trust God that he won't be shaken. He won't be shaken. God has a hold of him. We see that he can trust God with his reputation. It says there that his honor, his glory, 
is in God's hands. Wow, this is so important. His hope is in his trustworthy God. And God alone, and and this is so interesting to me, when I say I trust in God alone, you think, well, what are you going to do? You're just going to sit there? And and this is particularly interesting when you know David. Is David a passive man? No, he's he's a very active man. A man of action. We see in, in Second Samuel and many other places, he's called a mighty man. Did he not take action? He took action in this place, in this circumstance, to get out of Jerusalem. He didn't just sit there, saying, well, I guess you're, you're going to do it all, so what do I care? Certainly not. He got out of harm's way. His army acted to protect him. Very clear. What's he saying? None of that glory belongs to man. None of it. He won't give that glory to man. He wants God to get all the credit. This is, this is very important for us to see. The word alone or only there, it's the same word uh, we see, is repeated five times in the first six verses. So he's obviously trying to get something across, right? Verse 1, for God alone My soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. Even of the enemies, he says, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Verse 5, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. So what's he trying to say? I will not put my trust in anything other than God. If I act, I will not trust in that action. If other people act for me, I will not trust in their action. God is the one who saves. God is the one who saves. Before we look at verse 8, I want you to notice something. Uh, It's a blessing there. It's a slight difference between verse 1 and verse 5. Verse 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. What's happening? Can you see the difference? The first is a statement, right, of what he is doing. The second is what? He's commanding his soul to do something. He's commanding his soul to do something. Now, waiting in silence is is probably to do with not acting rashly, not taking things into his own hands. Have you, have you ever had that? I'm sure you have. When something really hard is happening and you think, I'll just, I'll just sit down and breathe for a while. You sit down, then you're up again. You know, <laughs> thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'll call this person. I'll call that person. I'll do this. I'll do that. You try to sit down again. You're up again. And you act rashly sometimes. It's certainly the case with me. And the issue is in the core of your being. It's in your soul as it is here. We make a decision and we need to make a decision to quiet our soul before God. Quiet our soul before God. Wait on Him. Wait on His time. Watch for Him to defend us. But I find with myself it rarely ever happens immediately and it rarely ever happens automatically. So we speak. We speak to our soul. Our soul when it's aching. Our soul when it's scared. Our soul when it's hurting. And we say, shh, God is your rock. God is your rock. He's your savior. He's your fortress. He's your mighty rock. He's your deliverer. Wait. He won't fail you. He won't fail you. We were in Jakarta Airport uh, on the 15th, uh, sorry, not the 15th, in September, (laughs) where the 15th came from, in September. And we walked in to this this airport and it was empty. I've never seen it, anything other than bustling. And we're looking around like, earth's going on. We're trying to get back to New Zealand at the time. And and we walk in and we eventually find the, the counter that we're after, the Singapore Air counter. And we start to check in, and then they look at the fact that we're traveling under Australian passports. Yes, I do that. (laughs) Um, Traveling under Australian passports, and they say, we can't process you. And I'm like, 
um, <laughs> I don't know what to do. And I, and I thought, well, I'm a New Zealander. This is Wellington. Well, they don't know that. And so, so they say, go and sit down and we'll get back to you. And so I'm sitting there in my chair and everything within me is wanting to grab the phone off them. You know, start talking about it because on edge that, that we might not be able to get home or we might lose our tickets or something like that. And I sat down and I thought, you know what? No. <laughs> no. I opened this psalm. I opened this psalm and I read it over and over again. For God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And I think it was about half an hour later or an hour, an hour. So you can imagine how many times I read this psalm. Um, <laughs> the lady comes over with the, with the boarding passes and I'm just like, just, you know, and um, it so helped my soul. So helped my soul and so helped me not to make, take matters into my own hands and ruin my testimony and start yelling at people. So easy for that to, yes, you can't picture it, and you can. <laughs> so what happens when we're in stress, right? Very important. Well, in verse 8, I love this too. David turns from his own experience to address God's people. You can imagine your own Israeli saying to himself, of course God looks after David. Of course God looks after David. He's the king. He's God's chosen one. He's a prophet. He's the writer of numerous psalms. He killed Goliath with a slingshot. He was a warrior beyond compare. compare. Of course God looks after him. He's special. You wouldn't think that, would you? I think that sometimes in my own heart. Of course God's looking after the mighty men of our generation. There are many of them. Of course God's faithful to them. Of course God is their rock. Of course God gave people strength through church history, all those names that we remember. But this is saying that God is not just faithful to those special ones. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to you. Very important. The same mighty God as my God, your God, your rock, your savior, your fortress, your mighty rock and your deliverer. Look at me, look at me at verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us, for us. You can trust him. You can trust him. And not just in the big things, the traumatic things. It says there, at all times, at all times, he is your helper, your refuge. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. I love the second line. Pour out your hearts before him. It's talking about unburdening the depths of your soul to God. Pouring that out to him. Cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You. Very important. Do you know that there are more psalms of lament and complaint than of any other kind? Not psalms of accusation. Don't do that. God's almighty. Remember that part. But God invites you to unburden yourself on him. Tell him your troubles, your fears, your hurts, your struggles, your failures, your hopes and your dreams. We can pour out our hearts to him and he's strong enough to listen. Strong enough to listen and so much more capable than anyone else to act both to strengthen you and also to, to deal with your situation. He can hold you up. The last line sums it up there. I love it. God is a refuge for us. David there saying, don't look at me. <laughs> All of us. He's our refuge. Our strength comes from God alone. Now, to underline this, we're going to have a whole point on this. David peels away some of the things that as humans we often rely on. Often become our idols. Where my strength does not lie. We see this first in 
verse 9, the first place where we can wrongly place our trust or fear is in humans. Wrongly placing our trust or fear in humans. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. This takes in people of any status, of any status, and the language is, is intentionally dismissive. If you want to seek your strength and seek your help in someone who is of low status, it's like uh, trusting in a breath. You go to grab it and it's not there. You go to lean on it and you break your hip, um, falling over. You can't do it. And the logical thought to us is, well, I better have friends of high estate. <laughs> That's what we think, right? Wow, if I only had friends that could help in this situation. Um, but look at how they're described here. A delusion. A lie. It's not saying they're liars. Who's deluded? I am, if I put my trust in them. I am. If, I, if, I, if my hope is in them and my sense of safety is in them, I'm deluding myself. Very important. They're a false hope. And the illustration used here uh, underlines this. David puts humans on one side of a scale. You've seen the, the old scales, right? The little fulcrum in the middle and then scales on both sides. And usually you put your stuff on one side and what happens? It goes down, right? And then you put your little weights on the other side until it slowly comes up and then you know how much it weighs. What's David saying here? All of them. You put them over on this side and they go up. Hang on, I haven't put any weights on yet. What's he saying? Well, the word for honor and glory in, in Hebrew means weighty. It means weighty, means substantial. And he's saying they have no weight. They have no substance. You put them all together and they're lighter than a breath. You can't rely on them. You can't rely on them. Humans are not worthy of our hope and trust. Yes, we can trust them relationally. Certainly we can. But if all our hope is in them, well, we're lost. We're lost. Of course, this is not saying that we can't trust anyone or that, that uh, humans can't help. But the strength of our life is not humans. And you know what? When you put all of your hope on a human, their knees buckle. They'll disappoint you. They will. All of us know that about ourselves, but sometimes we have inflated views of other people that they might do this. We're asking them to do something they were never designed to do, to carry burdens that only God can carry. Very important. You know, your friend that will help you the most will point you in the direction of the one whose knees don't buckle that you may find your strength in God. He won't disappoint you. He won't become weary of hearing of your troubles. He will fully understand them without having to hear it twice. God has the power to uphold you. He's the only one that can. And let me tell you, it will immensely help your relationships with the ones you love if you pour out your heart to God first. If you lean on him first so that you don't place unbearable burdens on the people around you. Very important. One comforting aspect of this picture of human status before God, Derek Kidner, the great uh, commentator, points this out, that the people who are attacking you are on that scale too. Where are they? They're going up. They're going up. They are not substantial. They are lighter than a breath. They are minuscule before God and they are not worthy of your fear. They're not worthy of your fear. We trust in God alone and we fear God alone. Well, the second place we can wrongly put our trust and wrongly see as, about, see as our strength is adopting the tactics of those who attack us. Adopting the, the tactics of those who attack us. Verse 10, the first uh, clause there. Put no trust in extortion. If you have an NAS or a New King James, you'll see that it's translated oppression. Oppression. The misuse of power to bring about my will. Well, he kicked off my palings, I'll kick off his palings. Wait till he's at his weakest. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Hurting the weak, 
one of the most beautiful descriptions of Christ is found in, in way back 700 years before he was born. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He doesn't kick down tottering fences. That is a method of the ungodly. That is not our, our method as Christians. Very important. Next we see here that we are not to put our hope in our own resources. And what's uh, interesting here is that it speaks both of ill-gotten gains and righteously gained money, righteously gained things. Very interesting. The first clause there, set no vain hopes on robbery. When, when money is your idol, when you have set your hopes on money that somehow it will save you, you will get sucked into sinning. You'll get sucked into sinning where it's outright stealing or the what we might call white stealing, cheating and lying to hold on to what you have. It's not white at all so that you can keep more of it. Setting your heart on God as your strength and God as your saviour, it'll guard your heart from this because money can draw us into wickedness. Now, very important. And you know, God can give you a contentment that the world can't offer you, can't give you. The second part of the verse speaks of positive, the positive side of money. If riches increase, what? Set not your heart on them. Set not your heart on them. This speaks of riches increasing naturally. It's like fruit growing on a tree and the, the word picture uh, that we have here. I think the hard thing is that when we gain more money, maybe we're getting on in life and our mortgage is nearly done with, and we have our land, we start to feel secure. We feel safe. And you know what? The, the other side of that, the switch side, is, it is, is money can be your idol when you don't have. Why? I'll be content if. I feel, I'll feel safe if. I'll finally be happy if. What are, you, what are you seeking from money? You're seeking something that only God can give you. And my dear friends, it's an idol. It's an idol. And you know, God does not take kindly to competition. Very important. It is right and biblical to save. It is right and biblical to plan ahead. It is right and biblical to be well off. It's even right and biblical to enjoy what you've been given. You see that in 1 Timothy 6.17. But if your hope is in that money, you need to repent. You need to repent. God is the one who deserves our faith and hope. Not our money, not our security on this earth. We need to guard our hearts and our consciences because this is a dangerous foe. Nothing does that better than having our hope in God alone. Our hope in God alone. I find these truths just wonderful to my own heart. Last point. Where my hope lies. Where my hope lies. This last section shows three aspects of God that give me reason to fully and quietly set all my hope on him. These three aspects are God's power, his love, and his justice. Um, verse 11 starts by saying, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. This is a, a, a term that's used to really underline what's about to be said, to say, hey, this is important. Listen, listen. And the thing we need to listen to is first, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. Now, this is reiterating the explicit message of this psalm, what David is saying explicitly there. And so I don't need to repeat it. Suffice to say, as I said earlier, God is high, God is mighty, God is massive, God is stable, God is strong. He's impenetrable. God is powerful. Our hope under attack is that the one who is within us is greater, greater than all others, greater than in the world. And if the nastiest, most powerful human on this planet, if Satan himself 
and all his angels come against you, they cannot do it without God's express permission. Dwell on that. They can't take your life. They can't touch a hair of your head without God's express permission. And if God gives his express permission, it will only be for your good. It will only be for your sanctification. It will only be for his glory. God is all-powerful. All-powerful. He has no equal. Having said that, it's verse 12 that shows me that that power is now mine. That he is for me. It's not comforting to me to know that the creator and sustainer of the universe is all-powerful. Why not? Well, well, what if he doesn't like me? (laughs) What if he doesn't care? What if he's malicious? It makes him terrifying if he's all-powerful. Look at verse 12. And this is the implicit theme of the psalm. His love, 12a, and that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. There is a, a beautiful word commonly coming up in the Old Testament You've probably heard it explained, the word chesed, chesed, God's faithful covenant love. God's faithful covenant love. God has tied himself to David in covenant, to Israel in covenant, to you in covenant. His faithful love. That's why he can say, my mighty rock, my salvation, my fortress, my refuge, because he's convinced, convinced that God loves him, he's committed to him, and he will not forsake him. God is for me. Is this true of you? If this is true of David, it's doubly true of you. You have a better mediator. Read this in the book of Hebrews a great high priest. You are under a better covenant. It says right there. <laughs> Based on better promises. You have so much more of God's love and commitment written for you to just read it than David ever had. I'm, I'm sure he understood who God is, but you have so much more at your disposal. disposal. You were wholly and completely loved from before you were born from eternity past, and not the slightest iota of that love was dependent on your performance. Let that hit you. Not the slightest iota of that love was based on your performance. You could not be closer to God. You are in Christ. How could you be closer to him? You could not be more pleasing to God, the perfect pleasing life of Jesus Christ has been credited to you. You couldn't please him more. You could not be more exalted. You are seated on Christ's throne with him. You would have heard these things last week, wouldn't you? God is for you. Unbreakably for you. Wholly committed to you. That is stunning. Don't let these things pass you by. Remind yourself of them. Let them sink into your bones. He is for you and nothing, nothing can be against you where that's the case. The last sentence in this beautiful psalm gives us one more reason why we should rest entirely on God even when we're under attack. God is just. God is just says verse uh, 12b there for you will render to a man according to his work do you ever when you're under attack or someone's lying about you just wish I just wish someone knew the truth someone does know the truth he knows where you're wrong too I've been in situations where I thought I was in the right and I was dead set in the wrong God knew that and he was still faithful been in situations where I thought I just so want to vindicate myself in this situation and by by God's grace I waited and he took that up 
But God may never do that on this earth. He may never do that on this earth. You may be in Paul's situation where you just want to be seen safely into the kingdom and held together by him. And he will be just. He will reward you for your faith and your patience. And what happens with the wicked? They are judged. They're not just judged blanketly. Read the end of Revelation. They are judged according to their works, according to their deeds. God is faithful. He is just. Very important. You can rest in the fact that God will act justly. And you know who loves justice more than you do? God loves justice far more than you could ever love it. It's his. It's one of his attributes. You can trust him in this. May God's mighty, loving, just self, may he grant us the ability to stand up under trial, to remind us that he alone is our mighty rock, our salvation, our fortress, our refuge, and that he will never, never forsake us. Let's pray together. God, we're so small. Each one of us here with those, with those little fences with the palings falling off. We're not strong in ourselves. We delude ourselves when we think we are. We're people who desperately need you. And Father, we pray that as we look at the things that we come into in this life, those trials that you've ordained that we would walk through, God, help us to cry out to you. Help us to equip our minds with your truth, with the greatness of who you are, that we may not fear, dear God. Help us afresh to know your love for us, your commitment that will never, never let us go. Father, please help each one of us that we may know your peace, that we can wait alone for you in silence and in full expectation that you're going to carry out your beautiful will in our lives for our good and for your glory. And Father, please, if there are people here that don't know you yet, please work in their hearts. God, fill them with a thirst that they may know their creator. God, give them the courage to come and talk that they may know you, that they may come to Christ knowing that he has paid for their sins. Oh God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen.